You say you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who for who can resist he will? But who are you? O man to answer back to God. Well what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel or honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show the wrath and to make him known for his power has endured with much patient vessel of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known for his riches of his glory or vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand from for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews, not only, but not only also from the Gentiles, as indeed he said to Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, and there they there will be called sons of the living God. Thank you, Ashley. We're very grateful to have God's Word to study this morning. So if you have not been with us, we are working our way through Romans chapter 9, which might be the most difficult chapter in the entire Bible. And if you've not been with us, but you happen to be here this morning, you are here on the morning in which we are tackling what might be the two most difficult verses in the most difficult chapter in the entire Bible. So, good choice being here with us this morning. Um, One of the apostles, Peter, uh, he was one of the inner three, one of the really close uh, disciples to Jesus. He's the one, he saw Jesus walking on the water, and he walked out on the water to him. You know, if I saw Jesus walking on the water, I would say, man, that is awesome. Jesus is walking on the water. I would not say, hey, can I come out there? But Peter did and walked out there, and you know the story, took his eyes off of Jesus and sank. And um, Peter, writing a letter to, to some of the people that he was looking after, he had this to say about Paul's letters. Romans is one of Paul's letters to the Christians in Rome. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter uh, 2, I'm sorry, 3, starting at verse 14. He writes, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. This is what I want you to listen to. There are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. That's Holy Spirit-inspired understatement. There are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So my point in reading that to you is Peter found Paul's teaching, Paul's writing about God's patience and sovereignty in the gospel hard to understand. So, 
we're in good company, if any of you also have found it hard to understand. Uh, I have been doing a lot of reading to preach this chapter. I haven't done this much reading in preparation to preach since we uh, studied the book of Joshua. You have to do a lot of reading to understand Old Testament stories. I haven't had to do this much reading since then. And I've read a bunch of different people's perspectives and interpretations and understandings. I've read other uh, men that I respect. I've read their sermons on it. I've read commentaries. And nearly all of them at some point throw out a disclaimer that says, you know, I'm doing my best here, but I'm not sure I really understand all the way fully what this means. Um, So we need to be humble. We need to tread carefully as we study this as well. Uh, A man I quote often, John Piper, wrote something to the effect of... um, He said something to the effect of, I know this might be stretching your minds to the breaking point, but better your mind be broken than God's word be broken. Uh, John MacArthur, some of you may have heard him. He he is a pretty solid Bible scholar guy. Uh, He said this in one of his sermons in Romans 8. Quote, I'm not real comfortable with this in my human mind, uh, but I'm sure clear what it says and the rest I take by faith. So, You may not be real comfortable with all this in your human mind either. Uh, Neither am I. But for us, our task is, as Peter said in in that last verse, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what we're after. We will grow in this process. And we need prayer, obviously. So would you bow with me? We'll ask for God to help us. We'll ask for God to enlighten us, to guide us to truth as we study these couple of verses. Let's pray. Father, you are, you are unfathomable to us except what you have revealed of yourself to us. And I thank you that you chose to do that. I thank you that you, through your instrument, the Apostle Paul, that you gave us this insight, this glimpse into you and your character and who you are. Help us to understand. Help us to accept. Help us to respond for your name, for your glory. Amen. So, I struggle with how to recap before beginning this sermon because I can't recap all of Romans. Uh, But I know many of you haven't been here for all of it. Um, So I'll do it this way. You know the phrase, um, mistaking the forest for the trees. Uh, We have been looking at some very interesting, peculiar trees in this forest that is Romans. So we're going to look at sort of two more before we start zooming back out. But I want to remind you of the forest, because we've been in in the forest looking at these trees for a while now. Um, The trees like God's choices, for instance. The fact that he chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. The fact that he chose Moses, not Pharaoh. Uh, The fact that he says in here in verse 18, he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. These individual trees, these individual verses in this book are very interesting. We could spend a long time examining them. But let's be reminded of the forest, the big idea. Paul's writing to the church in Rome about the gospel. That's his whole goal. We covered that when we first began. He wants the Roman Christians, whether they come from a Jewish background or a Gentile background to understand the riches of God's grace in the gospel. So, gospel is a churchy term that you hear a lot. I want to make sure we're clear on what the gospel is. Gospel means good news. 
gospel is the good news that we were in horrible trouble in our sin. Our sin had separated us from God, but God came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ to live the life that we failed to live and pay the penalty that we earned, that we deserved. That's what the cross is all about. So he rose again, conquering death. He rose again, substantiating all of his claims that he was indeed the one, the Messiah, the Son of God. And because of that, we have hope only in Jesus Christ. Not our ethnicity, not our good works. Jesus Christ alone. And under that banner of the fact that we are sinners trusting in Jesus, we are united. So Paul writes to the Roman church, which which was full of um, Christians from a Jewish background who had all kinds of religious tradition and heritage and strong sense of right, wrong, based in the Old Testament. Had those types of Christians had Gentile Christians who came from pagan background, who were used to going to temples where there were prostitutes, and that was how you worshipped. So he's trying to unite all these people, and he uses the gospel to do so. That's the big idea. The gospel is great, awesome. Be about it. Think about the gospel. Hear it. Accept it. Believe it. Investigate it. That's the big idea. That's the forest. So as, he, as we're walking through this, these woods we encounter this thought process that he enters into in chapter 9. Why are the Jews rejecting Jesus? And then he, we've gone through and he explains not all the Jews would accept Jesus. God has something bigger going on. It's not about being Jewish. It's not even about being good or bad because we're all bad. God has something bigger going on. And for him to bring this bigger plan about, he has to really flex the muscles of his sovereignty. He has to weave through history in his control on purpose, Jesus Christ and who will come to him. And so we've been in this extended meditation on God's sovereignty, the fact that he is God. We've been working on it for a while. And I say all this to kind of land where we landed at the end of last week before we begin this week. Here in chapter 9, Paul isn't trying to thoroughly explain the issues of predestination, election, free will, Calvinism. He's not trying to thoroughly explain these things. That's not what he's trying to do. He's trying to hammer over and over again on the fact that God is God. He is sovereign. He has the right to do whatever he wants until the Christians will accept it and rest in that. So, as we get into these verses, don't be thinking, I've got to understand this. I've got to understand this. That's not God's goal in here. Be thinking, Lord, help me accept this. Lord, help me accept this. That's God's goal here. Everybody with me? Okay? Okay. Take your word for it. Your head nods for it. The question to have in your mind is, will I accept the sovereign's sovereignty? Will I accept the divine's divinity? Will I accept the Lord's lordship? Or will I scramble to be the Lord, the divine, the sovereign in my own life? That's the question that we're wrestling with. I think this is why Paul begins verse 22. That's where we're really going to dig in today, the way he does. Okay, we're, I want a little um, feedback at this juncture. 
My translation, the English Standard Version, the one I like the best right now, says this in verse 22. What if God? That's how it begins. Now raise your hand if your translation, your version of God's words phrases that differently. Does your verse 22 begin with what if God? Raise your hand if it does not, if it begins with something else. Norma's begins with something else. Are you afraid that I'm going to like run down there and rip your Bible up or something? Just Norma? Norma, not to put you on the spot, what does yours say? Okay. What version is that? <laughs> this is why nobody else raised their hand. They knew I was going <laughs> to They knew I was going to call them out and embarrass. Okay. It says God has every right and then so on and so forth. Mine says, and I'm assuming everybody else's, says, what if God? See, this is just an example of how little we really understand about what Paul's getting out here. As you read a bunch of different people in translations, there's a lot of different ways that people think that this verse starts. Some think that it should be the word because, so that it would read, because God desiring to show his wrath, etc., etc. Some think it should be although, so it should read, Although God desiring to show his wrath, etc., etc., etc. Most think it should read, What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known, etc., etc., etc. And don't let me lose you. I'm not going to go down a whole grammatical interrogation of the text, but there's lots of different ways. The Greek is difficult. In fact, the Greek here is not even a complete sentence. He begins this thought, this challenging thought. And then he just stops it and moves on. So this is tough. We're going to use our minds this morning. Everybody up for that? Like three of you? Great. I think that it's right for as best I can understand. Let me just, this is what I'm trying to preface all this with. What I'm about to communicate to you is my very best to be accurate to what I believe God's word is saying here. I need you to be in here looking with me. And I'm humble enough to say to you in front of you, I'm not 100% confident in my own understanding of this. And even just these first three words are difficult. Okay, so be in here with me. I'm confident about what I'm saying, that it's the, it is my understanding at this point. Um, but I believe it should be what if God, because here's my theory. I think that Paul believes everything that he's about to say in verses 22 and 23. Let me read it. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? That's tough. If you're following the train of thought, that's tough. So here's my understanding, my belief. I think Paul believes what he's saying here, but I think he's presenting it as a hypothetical. Not because he doesn't believe it's true, but because he has no intention of unpacking all this right here. And he doesn't want us to get caught up in trying to unpack it all right here. Remember, his goal isn't that we gain complete understanding, it's that we accept the Lord's lordship and his right. Does everybody follow that? This is kind of complicated, I know. So I think it should be what if God. I think 
Paul is saying, just presenting it hypothetically so that he doesn't have to try to unpack it all right here, right now. He's saying, you know, what if the hardest edges of God's sovereignty are true? So what? Some people think it should be translated, so what if all these things are true? So think about your discomfort with where we've been so far in Romans 9. I've said some hard things. We've, we've tackled some hard things about God's sovereignty and election. So, yeah, okay, we're, we're doing feedback anyway. I saw somebody was about to say, what is your deepest discomfort so far with what we've talked about? I saw Tom was about to, maybe he's just raising his hand. Oh, okay, never mind. Never mind. Think to yourself, what is that you find most uncomfortable about God being this sovereign and who becomes a Christian and who doesn't? Okay? I think what Paul is doing is saying, so what if your worst fears about God's complete sovereignty are true? So what if the hardest edges of God's sovereignty over who becomes a Christian and who doesn't is true? Does he not have the right for those things to be true? And does it really change anything for us? I ran across a story in my reading about this that you might appreciate. Maybe you can relate. This is from John MacArthur. He says he was, um, he was reading the letters of a man named Benjamin Morgan Palmer, who uh, he was a preacher in the late 1800s. So he was in New Orleans. He was a preacher there. And Savannah had, um, let's see, he, before he went to New Orleans, he pastored in Savannah for a time and was there during a time of great revival. A lot of people were coming to Christ. And he had just preached an evangelistic message. Thank Billy Graham in a tent. Um, He had just preached an evangelistic message in which he had exalted the sovereignty of God and called on sinners to trust in this God. Basically what we've been working through, what we've been talking about. He had emphasized that sinners did not have the inherent ability to save themselves or to trust God. Like we've been saying. And a man who heard him was frankly very angry about this and showed up in his study on Monday morning to argue with him. So here's what this gentleman complained to Morgan Palmer about. He says, you preachers are the most contradictory men in the world, he said. Why, you said in your sermon that sinners were perfectly helpless in themselves and utterly unable to repent or believe. And then you turned around and said we would be damned if we did not. Palmer sensed that his visitor was wrestling with the great issues of life and death. And to make sure that the man really dealt with the gospel, he gave him an indifferent response. He said, well, my dear sir, there is no use in quarreling. Either you can or you can't. If you can, repent and believe. All I have to say is, I just hope you go and do it. Palmer then describes what happens next. As I did not raise my eyes from writing, I had no means of marking the effect of these words on the gentleman until after a moment's silence. With a choking utterance came the reply back. I have been trying my best for three whole days and I cannot. He could not repent. He could not come to Christ. Ah, I responded. That puts a different face upon it. We will go and tell this difficulty straight to God. We knelt down and I prayed as though this was the first time in human history that this trouble had ever arisen. 
and that here was a soul in the most desperate extremity who must believe or perish, and hopelessly unable of itself to do it, and consequently that it was just a case of divine interposition. Upon rising, I offered not one single word of comfort or advice, and so I left my friend in his powerlessness in the hands of God as his only helper. In a short time, he came through the struggle, rejoicing in the hope of eternal life. So I share that story to say, so what if these things are true? You, you might say, I will not believe that it's up to God who believes or who doesn't. Okay, it's either true or it isn't. But it's for us to believe and it's for us to preach the gospel. So we must move on. And you know, the deepest things, the deepest things in life, you have to accept before you can understand. Think with me if that's not true. I know we Americans, we think we have to understand before we accept. You know, if we get a contract to buy a car, we want to understand all the details of that before we accept. But think about the deeper things. Think about your children and you as their parent. Is it more important first that they understand everything about you, who you are, what you mean when you say what you say, why you said it, what your motivation is, or is it more important that first they accept? They have to accept before the door is open for them to understand as they grow as your child. Think about you who are married. Think about your wedding vows. How much time did you spend trying to make sure you understood every line of that Going through all the possible variations with your future spouse. I know we have an engaged couple over there. Did you have to understand every little detail about how that was going to work itself out before you could accept it? Or did you have to accept it before you could start to understand how it was going to work itself out? The deepest things, the deepest relationships, the door is open to understanding through acceptance. So we have to be about acceptance here before we can be about understanding. This is all introduction, by the way. I haven't even gotten into the text. So with this in mind, we're going to look at these two verses. There's four things that Paul, I believe, is simply suggesting. What if these things are true of God? Okay, so we're going to look at the four things very simply. I'm not going to attempt to explain all these because Paul doesn't attempt to explain all these. So we're going to frame it like this. We're going to look at what God wants to do, what God does, why God does it, and how God does it. These are the four things Paul suggests. What if these things are true? What God wants to do, what God does, why God does it, how God does it. Let me read the two verses again. What God wants to do. As I read the verses, read with me and look for it. What does God want? What does God desire? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Did you catch what God's desire is in there? I read an interesting quote about desire. I forget who who said it. But the lady said, The desire of the man is for the woman, but the desire of the woman is for the desire of the man. 
Does that ring true? That really struck me as true. The desire of the man is for the woman, but the desire of the woman is for the desire of the man. The man wants the woman, but the woman just wants the man to want her. And I see husbands and wives looking at each other like, yeah. But what does God want? What does God desire? Have you ever thought about it? I think we assume God desires for us to have what we desire. But what if God has a desire greater, bigger, deeper than our desires? And what if those desires are more important, more primary than our desires? So what is his desire? Well, look in the verse there. It says, God, comma, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power. And then in verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory. You know, a really good... I'll use this example. Uh, I, at one time in my life, was a tennis player. I'm a has-been now. But back when I was pretty decent, or at least I thought I was pretty decent, I prided myself on that, and therefore I welcomed people coming to watch me play, like at a match. It was sort of my glory that I was decent at tennis. And so I wanted to show that. I wanted to make that known. I know that sounds dumb to say out loud, but you guys have your things. A really good basketball player wants to show that, wants people to see it. Whatever you're really good at, you want to show that. You want that to be known. Being a great tennis player, a great tennis player wants people to see his greatness at tennis. A great being wants people to see the greatness of his being. You know, we're made in the image of God. That desire is a reflection of how God is. God is infinitely perfect in his entire being. And so what does he want? At least right here, this facet of what God wants is to display all the different angles of his glory. And in this case, those facets of his glory are wrath and power. I have another quote for you at this point. Way back, a theologian named Jonathan Edwards wrote, It is a proper and excellent thing for infinite glory to shine forth. And for the same reason, it is proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete. That is, that all parts of his glory should shine forth. That every beauty should be proportionably effulgent. He wrote a long time ago, that means radiant. That the beholder may have a proper notion of God. It is not proper that one glory should be exceedingly manifested and another not at all. See, God is glorious for many different reasons, not just because he is love, but because that love is, is just, and he is holy, and his wrath is right, and he is powerful. So first thing Paul throws out there, what if this is true? And I believe it is true, and I believe he believes it's true. Can you accept that God wants to show, to make known his glory, including his glorious wrath, glorious wrath and glorious power? Can you accept that? It didn't say, can you understand it? Can you accept it? <clears throat> Number two, what God does. That was what God wants to do. What God does. Okay, we'll read it again. See if you can find what God does. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand 
for glory. Do you catch what he does? It's right after what we just read. He endures with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. It points back to verse 17 where it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, you know, Pharaoh of Moses and the Exodus from Egypt, Pharaoh, Ten Commandments, Pharaoh. For this very purpose, I have raised you up. Why? What desire was behind that? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why did God allow Pharaoh to enslave Israel for 400-ish years? Why did God allow Pharaoh to continue to live after he hardened his heart and would not respond after plague, after plague, after plague? Why did God allow Hitler to live so long? Bin Laden, serial killers, why? Why does God allow any evil being, evil person to continue to live? Why does God allow anyone who turns his back on him to continue? I mean, remember, Paul writes in Ephesians that we're all by nature children of wrath. Why does he put up with any of it? For another minute. It has to do with this desire to show his glorious wrath and power and mercy. And before we go to number three, can you accept everything up to this point? I didn't say can you understand it, I said can you accept it. So we talked about what God wants to do, what God does, why God does it. Okay, I'm going to read these two verses and I know, I don't know what time it is. Read these two verses. See if you can find why God does what he does. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So God does this. God patiently endures vessels of wrath, which we all are born as, to make all of his glory, all this glory known to the vessels of mercy. You know, when we, I've told you this so many times, but one time I did a survey with a bunch of young people. What do you think heaven's going to be like? What's going to be there? What are we going to do? And man, it sounded great. They're, you know, eat whatever we want, do whatever we want. It's going to be the best time in the world. Streets of gold, toothbrushes of gold. Everything's going to sparkle. I'm going to look great. New body. But there was one thing missing, one being missing, God. Nobody thought, nobody even envisioned God being in heaven. When God is heaven, it's his presence that heaven is all about. And eternity will be us just awed and amazed by the weight of his glory. Now, I do believe all those other things, you know, that new bodies and, you know, I don't think we're going to be babies with diapers plucking harps we're not turning into something like that but all eternity will be us just learning more and more about the weight and the glory of God and so what he does in these verses is about that about showing and communicating his glory to the vessels of mercy which are those who are in Christ Jesus 
we'll be singing with those angels. Have you, you ever read in Isaiah and in Revelation where the angels are just saying forever, holy, holy, holy? And you think, man, is that what it's going to be? Are we just going to be singing for eternity? That we don't understand. We don't understand what it's going to be like to sing the praises of God in God's presence. Okay. What God wants to do, what he does, why he does it. Lastly, how God does it. I'm going to read it. Last time I'm going to read these two verses, see if you can see how he does it. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Basically summed up what Paul is saying. What if this is true? Can you accept this? That God makes known his rich, rich, rich glory to vessels of mercy by displaying his glorious wrath and power stored up for vessels of wrath. What if that is the way it works? Can you accept that? Does God have the right to do it that way? You know, this isn't the first time Paul has thrown this idea out there. We covered it back in Romans 2, verse 5. And he talks about God's patience and, and how it's meant to lead you to repentance. And, and in verse 5 he says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Think about Pharaoh in the Exodus one last time. You know, we said, why did God allow Pharaoh to enslave these people for 400 years? Why did God allow Pharaoh to turn his back on Moses' plea to let his people go all these times? What was the result of all that? It resulted in the most glorious display of God's work in humanity that the Jewish people have. It resulted in everything that stands behind the Passover. It resulted in the exodus. It resulted in the ten plagues in which he, one by one, slapped all the Egyptian gods in the face and said that they're worthless. The blood, water to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the famine, the boils, the hail, the locusts, darkness, death of the firstborn. He split the sea. It's the stuff that we're still talking about today. How glorious is this God? It's the stuff that all through the Old Testament they tried to not forget. Don't forget, our God did this. But for him to do that, there had to be a vessel of wrath. If there were no vessel of wrath, there would be no great display of God's glory and wrath and power and mercy. And I know that you will wrestle with this as I wrestle with this, as John MacArthur wrestles with this, as John Piper wrestles with this, as Peter wrestles with this. I do not present, pretend to understand all this. But what's important is not that we understand all this right now. What's important is that we accept that God is God, even in these things. So the note that I want to end on, I want to ask you to Bow your head and close your eyes. It's not my typical way, but I'd like you to bow your head and close your eyes so that there's no distraction, so it's just you in your own space. Bow your head and close, my, close your eyes, and I'm going to 
ask you a couple of questions for you to think through, wrestle with before you and God. Are you willing to accept that God has desires that are preeminent? Are you willing to accept that God's desires in the nitty-gritty points of your life are more important than your desires and that they are better than your desires? Are you willing to accept that God has deep reasons for every aspect of reality, even the darkest, and that all of it will work together for good? And that in the end, all of it will make us praise him more fervently. Are you willing to accept that God does what he does so that we will see his glory more than so that we will be glorious? Because these are the foundational questions. And may we all say with Paul... In just a few chapters, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways. How inscrutable his judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.